This is Jake Leahy reading the Supreme Court Decision Syllabus in Jones v. Hendricks. Certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Decided June 22, 2023. In 2000, the District Court for the Western District of Missouri sentenced petitioner Marcus D'Angelo Jones after he was convicted on two counts of unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon in violation of 18 U.S.C. 922 G1 and one count of making false statements to acquire a firearm. The Eighth Circuit affirmed Jones's convictions and sentence. Jones then filed a motion pursuant to 28 U.S.C. 2255, which resulted in the vacature of one of his concurrent 922 G sentences. Many years later, this court held in Rehaf versus United States that a defendant's knowledge of the status that disqualifies him from owning a firearm is an element of a 922G conviction. Rehaf's holding abrogated contrary Eighth Circuit precedent applied by the courts in Jones's trial and direct appeal. Seeking to collaterally attack his remaining 922G conviction based on Rehaf's statutory holding, Jones filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus under 28 U.S.C. 2241 in the district of his imprisonment, the Eastern District of Arkansas. The district court dismissed Jones's habeas petition for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed. Held. Section 2255E does not allow a prisoner asserting an intervening change in interpretation of a criminal statute to circumvent the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996's restrictions on second or successive Section 2255 motions by filing a Section 2241 habeas petition. A. Congress created Section 2255 as a remedial vehicle by which federal prisoners could collaterally attack their sentences by motion in the sentencing court rather than by a petition for a writ of habeas corpus under Section 2241 in the District of Confinement. The sole purpose of Section 2255 was to address the serious administrative problems created by district courts collaterally reviewing one another's proceedings without access to needed evidence and aggravated by the concentration of federal prisoners in certain judicial districts that therefore faced an inordinate number of habeas corpus actions. United States versus Heyman. To make this change effective, Congress generally barred federal prisoners quote-unquote authorized to file a Section 2255 motion from filing a petition under Section 2241. But, in a provision of Section 2255E, now known as the Saving Clause, Congress preserved access to Section 2241 in cases where the remedy by motion is inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of a prisoner's detention. Congress later enacted the AEDPA, which refers to the above-mentioned Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1991, 
So Congress later enacted the AEDPA, which is relevant here, barred second or successive Section 2255 motions, unless based on either newly discovered evidence or a new rule of constitutional law. Some courts faced with AEDPA's second or successive restrictions held that Section 2255 was inadequate and ineffective under the saving clause when AEDPA's restrictions barred a prisoner from seeking relief based on a new interpretation of a criminal statute that circuit precedent had foreclosed at the time of the prisoner's trial, appeal, and first Section 2255 motion. Section 2255E's saving clause does not authorize that end run around AEDPA. The clause preserves recourse to Section 2241 in cases where unusual circumstances make it impossible or impracticable to seek relief in the sentencing court, as well as for challenges to detention other than collateral attacks on a sentence. But Section 2255H specifies the two limited conditions in which federal prisoners may bring second or successive collateral attacks on their sentences. The inability of a prisoner with a statutory claim to satisfy Section 2255H does not mean that the prisoner may bring the claim in a Section 2241 petition. B. Jones and the United States each advance unpersuasive theories of when and why Section 2255H's exclusion of statutory claims sometimes renders Section 2255 inadequate or ineffective for purposes of the saving clause. 1. Jones argues that Section 2255 is necessarily inadequate or ineffective to test a prisoner's claim if the Section 2255 court fails to apply the correct substantive law. But the saving clause is concerned with the adequacy or effectiveness of the remedial vehicle, quote, the remedy by motion, end quote, not any court's asserted errors of law. Next, Jones argues that courts of equity would afford relief from inadequate legal remedies in a broad range of circumstances to the extent relevant to Section 2255E, This proves, at most, that a variety of practical obstacles might trigger the saving clause. See Heyman. Not that the clause offers an exemption from AEDPA's limits on second or successive collateral attacks. Jones further argues that the saving clause's use of the present tense, quote, is inadequate or ineffective, end quote, means that Section 2241 is available whenever a prisoner is presently unable to file a Section 2255 motion. That argument would nullify AEDPA's limits on collateral relief. Jones suggests that denying him the chance to raise his rehave claim in a Section 2241 petition would violate the suspension clause. It's... U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2. This argument fails because it would extend the writ of habeas corpus far beyond its scope when the Constitution was drafted and ratified. See Department of Homeland Security versus uh, Thurisigian. When the suspension clause was adopted, Jones's rehave claim 
would not have been cognizable in habeas at all. At the founding, a sentence after conviction, quote, by a court of competent jurisdiction, was in itself sufficient cause for a prisoner's continued detention. See Brown versus Davenport. Also quoting Ex parte Watkins. A particular relevance here, a habeas court had no power to look beyond the judgment to re-examine the charges on which it was rendered for substantive errors of law, even if the sentencing court had misconstrued the law and had pronounced an offense to be punishable criminally, which was not so. While Jones argues that pre-founding practice was otherwise, he fails to identify a single clear case of habeas being used to relitigate a conviction after trial by a court of general criminal jurisdiction. The principles of ex parte Watkins guided this court's understanding of the habeas writ throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th. See Brown. It was not until 1974, in Davis v. United States, that the court held for the first time that a substantive error of statutory law could be a cognizable ground for a collateral attack on a federal court's criminal judgment. The suspension clause neither constitutionalizes that innovation nor requires its extension to a second or successive collateral attack. Jones's remaining constitutional arguments are no more persuasive. He argues that denying him a new opportunity for collateral review of his rehave claim threatens Congress's exclusive power to define crimes, but a court does not usurp legislative power simply by misinterpreting the law in a given case. Next, Jones points to Fiore v. White, which applied the rule that due process requires that the prosecution prove every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. But due process does not guarantee a direct appeal, McCain v. Durston, let alone the opportunity to have legal issues redetermined in successive collateral attacks. Finally, the Eighth Amendment's constraints on the kinds of punishments governments may inflict creates no independent entitlement to a second round of post-conviction review. 2. The government asks the court to adopt a novel interpretation of Section 2255E's saving clause based on an elaborate argument. Starting from the premise that the words inadequate or ineffective imply reference to a benchmark of adequacy and effectiveness, the government equates that benchmark with the types of claims cognizable in federal habeas petitions by state prisoners under the general habeas statutes. The the government ultimately concludes that Section 2255H renders Section 2255 inadequate or ineffective to test a federal prisoner's statutory claim in cases where the prisoner has already filed one Section 2255 motion and the claim otherwise satisfies pre-AEDPA habeas principles, which generally require a colorable showing of factual innocence. See McCleskey v. Zant, quoting Coleman v. Wilson. 
the court sees no indication that the saving clause adopts the government's state prisoner habeas benchmark. In any event, that benchmark has uncertain relevance to the question presented here because federal habeas relief does not lie for errors of state law. The government's theory ultimately rests and set on its assertion that Section 2255H is simply not clear enough to support the inference that Congress entirely closed the door on pure statutory claims not brought in a federal prisoner's initial 2255 motion. That assertion is unpersuasive. The government asserts that the court must require the clearest command before construing AEDPA to close the courthouse doors on a strong, equitable claim for relief. See Holland versus Florida. But AEDPA's restrictions embody Congress's policy judgment regarding the appropriate balance between finality and error correction. the court declines to adopt a presumption against finality. Further, the court typically has found clear statement rules appropriate when a statute implicates historically or constitutionally grounded norms that the court would not expect Congress to unsettle lightly. See Alabama Association of Realtors versus Department of Health and Human Services. As far as history and the Constitution are concerned, there is nothing incongruous about a system in which the kind of error, the application of a since-rejected statutory interpretation, cannot be remedied after final judgment. See George v. McDonough. And thus nothing fundamentally surprising about Congress declining to make such errors remediable in a second or successive collateral attack. Justice Thomas delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Sotomayor and Kagan filed a dissenting opinion. Justice Jackson filed a dissenting opinion. And that was Jones versus Hendricks. Thanks again for listening. This is Jake Lee with the Supreme Court Decision Syllabus. Be sure to subscribe and receive notifications when new episodes hit. Thanks for listening.